0: We are in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, and as we are discovering going through Matthew, uh, there's lots of hard things here. Normally we like the Gospels, its narrative, and there's stories and parables and all sorts of stuff, and you get into these long teaching sections, of which there's five in Matthew, and you discover that Jesus teaches us some really hard things just kind of wish we'd skip over the hard things and get to the ones, you know, the stories that are a lot more exciting. But that's not going to happen. So, we're at one of those hard teaching places today in Matthew chapter 5. I'm going to read it as we go through it, so let's open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, Every Lord's Day, we thank you for giving us the scriptures and making us your people. And we thank you for bringing us to this gospel to learn more about your son, Jesus. This morning, we ask that you would give us the grace to understand your hard teaching here, to understand it's hard, not simply because Jesus has the ability to say so much in so few words, but it's hard because our wills are not easily bent to obedience. We want to listen to our own hearts instead of listening to yours. So help us to consider what it means to follow you and not ourselves. So by your Spirit, open this Gospel to us. Help us to see Jesus. And as always for this, we need your grace. Give us the desire to learn from you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Most families have what I'm going to call a crazy uncle you know that odd or semi creepy distant relative who sometimes forgets to show up for family events you know who I'm talking about you're thinking of him or her right now some of you are praying it's not you now most of the time we smile in relief when the crazy uncle doesn't show up for Thanksgiving or forgets the family reunion. Truth be told, we really don't mind that he's not there. In fact, after we had kids, we're secretly glad he's not there, because who knows what he would teach the kids. Now, no one treats our crazy uncle with outright contempt. Actually, we do our best to avoid talking about him at all, unless it's in a hushed tones so the kids can't hear us. Everyone cares about him, after all. He's family. But it's awkward to have him around. And everyone's a lot more at ease when he stays away. In all my years as a Christian, I met lots of people who claim to be followers of Jesus who put the law of the Old Testament on a par with their crazy uncle. And by law, in fact, we could easily call it uncle law. And these Christians can mean anything from uh, the first five books or the Old Testament rules and regulations to the whole Old Testament itself. And they know that Uncle Law exists. They know that somehow we're related to him. But having to deal with him feels really awkward. Everyone seems a lot more at ease when you can just hang out with Aunt Grace, whom everyone thinks is just awesome. And we tend to think that Jesus is pleased by this blatant omission. After all, didn't Jesus just tell us in the Beatitudes about a fresh and liberating approach to true spiritual life? Jesus seems to focus on our inner life. In contrast, the law of the Old Testament seems to focus on our outer life. And so we feel as a result that the law is exterior or artificial or phony or a some oppressive path to loving God. We think, I am so glad that my personal relationship with Jesus frees me from all of these religious rules. I really don't have to deal with my crazy old Uncle Law. However, there is a major problem with our attitude towards old Uncle Law. And that's simply put that Jesus loves Uncle Law. Jesus loves the law. Matthew keeps telling us that Jesus' entire life, even the external events swirling around him, fulfilled the Old Testament. Jesus constantly breathed in the life-giving air of the Old Testament. He read it, studied it, memorized it, uh, trusted his Father through it, and fought Satan with it. And even as he died on the cross, slowly suffocating... Gasping for air, his brain bursting with pain, Jesus managed to quote from the law. Matthew 5, verses 17 to 20, our text this morning, reinforces Jesus' pro-law convictions. He doesn't say, once you have a personal relationship with me, you can dispense with the law. Just get rid of that crazy old uncle. Believe in me. Focus on being pure in heart and kind and merciful. And you can shed all those burdensome rules and regulations. Instead, right after the Beatitudes, that wonderful introduction to true spiritual life, Jesus points us back to the law. He has no intention of tossing it out. And if we're looking for a way to dump the law or scratch it off our list of spiritual advisors, Jesus isn't offering any help. In fact, according to Jesus... Our crazy old Uncle Law is here to stay. So why is Jesus teaching this? Why is Jesus teaching this? Turn with me to Matthew 5, verses 17 through 20. And Jesus says here, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now Jesus utters these words about the law in the kingdom in the context of many misunderstandings about the law in Israel. He's speaking primarily to his disciples who surely had heard the teachings of the Pharisees. The scribes and the Pharisees certainly had a great reputation of being the defenders, the great protectors of the law in Israel. And yet Jesus had already begun to criticize them. And So there's questions, is he opposed to the law? Because the scribes and Pharisees are the upholders of the law, the, the law of Moses, the tradition of Israel, the teaching of the Old Testament. Is Jesus going to oppose the law? So far, Jesus has explained the kingdom without referring to the law or to its rule or to its standards of behavior. But now he's going to explain the rule, the standard of the kingdom and its relationship to the Old Testament. And here Jesus is going to give us his teaching on the place of the law in the Christian life. Now let me say plainly, Jesus clearly thinks this is important. But Jesus knew that there's people in the multitudes, the disciples, the crowds around him, uh, as his own uh, followers, who have struggles in life. Perhaps some of them had family struggles they're dealing with. Some of them had children uh, struggles they're dealing with, parental struggles they're dealing with, marital struggles they're dealing with. Some of them, no doubt, had financial worries. Others of them had worries with regard to their work. There's all sorts of things on the minds and hearts of these people, not unlike us. (coughs) And Jesus knew that. And yet Jesus chose to talk with them about the place of the law in the Christian life. It's not because Jesus is irrelevant he chooses to speak about the law. He speaks on this subject, I think, precisely because he knows how important it is to live the Christian life, <coughs> Jesus thinks that we must, must know what the proper role of the law is, the proper role of the Scripture in our life, in the Christian life. You know, John Newton wrote the amazing uh, hymn "Amazing Grace." Once wrote in a letter to a friend that ignorance of the nature and design of the law is at the bottom of most of our religious mistakes. It's precisely for that reason that our Lord Jesus chooses to speak about the law to his people. Not because he wants to talk about some irrelevant theological topic, because he couldn't speak on a more relevant topic for Christian living. And so in this passage, Jesus contrasts his views with the prevailing views of the day. Remember, the Pharisees have a high view of the law. That's why they exist. It's after the exile, they were all sent away to Babylon because of idolatry. To make a long story short, when they came back, said, we need a group of people to make sure that's never going to happen again. And we're going to create the Pharisees and they're going to make sure we obey the law and that we don't chase after idols so we never get sent into exile again. So these people are highly esteemed. They are the great teachers and keepers of the law in Israel. But Jesus in this passage and in the passage to follow is going to accuse them of undercutting the authority of the law by their hypocrisy, and by their man-made traditions. (coughs) We have a somewhat different problem in our day and age. Now, in Jesus' day, his opponent said, look, Jesus has done away with the law. He's opposed the law. He's got some sort of relationship uh, with God that... uh, has no call to obedience and it can reject the teachings of Moses. And today a lot of people say, sounds good to me. It's precisely what he's doing. And it's a good thing too. And in our day, if you're in a Christian circles and you begin to talk uh, and use such uh, horrible bad words as duty or obedience, you're likely to be called A legalist. It's a foul word. We use it as like the worst of swear words. I think he's a legalist. Pray for him. I mean, we don't have anything to do with obedience around here. It's all about grace. And often grace is presented as being opposed to righteousness and obedience in the Christian life. And we really believe that love is all you need. And we're a New Testament church and that Old Testament church doesn't have anything to do with us. And people think like that. Love, not law, grace, not obedience. And here Jesus is going to correct this kind of wrong thinking. We see many great truths set out for us here in verses 17-20. through We can't possibly cover in-depth, everything that Jesus says here. It's too rich. Don't ever let anyone tell you that Jesus wasn't a theologian. He can say more per letter than any theologian you know. And we can't possibly do justice to everything he says. But I do want to point out four great truths that Jesus teaches here about the role of the law in the Christian life. And so in order to understand why Jesus loves the law, First, you have to know that Jesus fulfills the law. And that's the first blank there in your outline. Jesus fulfills the law. Get my wire's all tangled up here. So the first great truth Here is the Old Testament commands and prophecies and promises are all fulfilled in Christ's kingdom. It's the first great truth that he teaches here, verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus is teaching here that the Old Testament commands and prophecies and promises are fulfilled in his kingdom. In other words, he's saying he came to establish not abolish the principles of righteousness set forth in the Old Testament moral law. Jesus is telling us here about his relationship with the law and with the Old Testament in general. Now, many of you being in Bible studies and Sunday school know that the phrase the law and the prophets is shorthand for the whole Old Testament. Good Jewish folks would have known The first five books of the Bible were the law, the Torah, and that the writings and prophets that came after them were essentially the commentary of the prophets on the law. And so the law and the prophets make up the whole of the Old Testament. And here Jesus is saying to those opponents who regarded him somehow as anti-Moses, who regarded him as some sort of revolutionary who's attempting to do away with the Old Testament norms and commands. He says, don't even think, not just for a moment, that I'm here to abolish the law. Don't listen to what the Pharisees are saying about me. Don't be mistaken in what I'm about to tell you. Don't think that I have come to abolish the law. I've come to fulfill it. I've come to fulfill it. Now we can stop here and ask why in the world would somebody have thought that Jesus is coming to abolish the law? Well, there are several good reasons. One reason is Jesus has been fairly busy criticizing the scribes and the Pharisees, and of course their main focus is they're the great law keepers. You know, they're they're the defenders of the law and of the whole Old testament, and Jesus had been criticizing them, and naturally there'd be some of Jesus' disciples, perhaps some among us people who would read this and think, well, maybe Jesus is criticizing the law. So Jesus says this so people who think that he's criticizing the law will understand that he is not. He is not criticizing the law. On the other hand, his upcoming uh, words that follow on after this, which uh, Reverend Lee is going to cover next Sunday, He's going to provide a series of contrasts. And six times he's going to say, you have heard, but I say. He's not saying, you have heard and that's wrong, and I say this and that's right. What he's saying is, you have heard, and that's right, but it's not enough. But I say, I agree with all that, and all this additional. His sayings are getting beyond the letter of the law and including the spirit of the law. And that's what Jeff's going to talk about uh, next week. So, Jesus is saying this, so when all that, the rest of that comes in this chapter, he says, I don't want you to hear that that's not good anymore. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not coming to abolish the law and the prophets. Of course, third is the Pharisees' attitude towards Jesus. They certainly thought, since he didn't agree with them, that he must be trying to abolish the law. They thought that's his goal. We'll read in various places in the Gospel that they accused Jesus of overthrowing the seed of Moses, of attacking the norms that God had set forth in the Old Testament. And Jesus is telling them, if you've heard the Pharisees say that about me, or he's telling us, if you read the Pharisees saying that about me in the Scriptures, don't think that's what I'm doing. That's what they say I'm doing, but that's not what I'm doing. Jesus wants this passage, these four verses, to be the controlling word of our understanding of how the Old Testament Scripture fits into his kingdom. He says there's a place the law occupies in his kingdom. And notice there's two things in verse 17 that he teaches us. First, he teaches us that he has not come to abolish the law. Jesus is saying, I'm not anti-Old Testament. I'm not anti-Scripture. I'm not anti-moral law. I'm not anti-obedience. I'm not saying that obedience to the law doesn't matter. The law, Jesus says, continues to be valid, continues to reveal God, continues to reveal His character and His will for us, and continues to reveal the true nature of man when we measure ourselves by it. It continues to show us the nature of salvation because it teaches us that we cannot be saved by the law. The law continues to do all these things and more. It continues to be the perfect rule of righteousness for the Christian life. And once you understand the principle that you cannot save yourself by the law, and you understand that salvation is by grace, salvation is through faith, then you can understand that only by the grace of God and the residence of the Holy Spirit in your heart can you even begin to obey the law which God created you to keep in the first place. It's only through the grace of God that we can be who God intended us to be and do the things that God intended us to do, which is obey His Word. So Jesus makes it clear that when the law is rightly understood, it's not opposed to the Gospel, but it goes hand in hand with the Gospel. The Gospel purpose is that we will be conformed to God's image what what God is like? What is His character like? That's revealed in the law. And so when the Gospel takes hold of our lives, the result should be that we begin to delight in the law. And perhaps we could even say with the psalmist in Psalm 119, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Therefore, I hate every false way. No longer is the law our enemy. It becomes our friend. As if it were the tracks of the train on which the Christian life is riding. And then we have the second half of that uh, sentence, verse 17, where Jesus says He's not only not come to abolish the law, but He has come to fulfill it. His relationship to the law is one of fulfillment. Those of you who have studied Matthew before know that one of Matthew's favorite themes is fulfillment. He's already mentioned fulfillment five times uh, before he even gets to this passage. And he's going to mention it a bunch more times in this Gospel. But what does he mean he's going to fulfill the law? What does it mean that Jesus has come to fulfill the law? Well, it means several things. If we want to understand what the law means... We have to look to Christ because He's fulfilled it in His work and He has fulfilled it in His person. The prophets spoke of Him and He fulfilled what they predicted. The ceremonial law spoke of Him in types and shadows. It set forth the truth of His atoning work and He fulfilled that. The Lord has fulfilled the law in His person. He's fulfilled the law in His teaching. The Pharisees misunderstood the law. But Jesus shows us what the law truly means and corrects their misunderstandings. The Lord Jesus fulfilled the law in his life. He perfectly obeys the law. And he shows us the real meaning of the law in his obedience. He obeys the law perfectly as the covenant of works, what we call his active obedience on our behalf. He perfectly obeyed the law. And his fulfilling of the law becomes our very source of salvation. If he hadn't had active obedience where he perfectly obeyed the law in his life, he wouldn't be that perfect sacrifice for our sin. And then he fulfills the law in his death. In the death of Christ, we see the reality of the law's demand for holiness. In the death of Christ, we see what we deserve, but what he took upon himself when we see Him cry out from the cross, My God, My God, why have You forsaken Me? We see what we ought to have been given. And yet what He has taken on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God. His death on the cross is what we call His passive obedience. Being that substitutionary atonement, that sacrifice for you and for me. And again, it's our very source of salvation. We need Jesus' perfect active obedience and we need His perfect passive obedience. The Lord Jesus fulfills the law in us by His grace, by the work of the Holy Spirit, writes God's law in our hearts again so that we can delight in the law of the Lord. In all those ways, the Lord Jesus fulfills the law. So He teaches in verse 17 that all of the Old Testament commands and prophecies and promises all find their fulfillment in His kingdom. It's the first great truth that Jesus teaches here. The second great truth we see in verse 18. Jesus affirms the law. He affirms the law. Notice that verse 18. The inspiration and authority of the Scriptures is joyfully acknowledged in Christ's kingdom. There it says, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law, until all is accomplished. In other words, Jesus is telling us that He upholds the authority of the Old Testament Scripture without qualification. Jesus is saying it's authoritative. You want to know what I think about the Old Testament? It's authoritative. That's what Jesus is saying. Now today, evangelicals, like us, are often made fun of. We're accused of being rationalist or we're accused of being ignorant. Primarily because we believe in the inspiration, authority, inerrancy, and sufficiency of the Scriptures. The inspiration, authority, inerrancy, and sufficiency of the Scriptures. And we believe in it as an act of devotion to the Lord. We believe it because He believed it. And our Lord says in verse 18, until heaven and earth pass away, not the cross of the T or the dot of an eye of the Lord's inspired word will fail. It will all come to pass. It will all be effectual. It will all go forth and not return void. Every single bit of it, even the seemingly most insignificant portion. Jesus here lends His character and His position and His status to the affirmation of the authority of God's word, and we believe in the authority of Scripture precisely because our Lord believed in the authority of Scripture, and that's the second great truth that Jesus teaches here. Third great truth comes to us in verse nineteen, where Jesus teaches the law. He teaches the law. He teaches that the Old Testament moral law is the standard. Of righteousness in Christ's kingdom. It says, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. The Lord Jesus had the Pharisees surrounding him and accusing him, You and your followers, you don't follow the law, you belittle the law. And Jesus responds, Let me tell you something. In my kingdom, none of my shepherds belittle the Scriptures. In my kingdom, the shepherds preach the Scriptures. And what's more, we not only preach the Scriptures, we live the Scriptures. And By the way, that's not legalism. It's not legalism to keep the law of God. It's not legalism to desire to keep the law of God. Let's be very clear here, friends. Jesus doesn't say to the Pharisees, your problem is you care about the law too much. He never says that you can read the whole new testament and you will never find jesus telling them that you care about the law too much you care about obedience too much he never says that to the pharisees to the pharisees what he says what he always says is your problem is you don't care about the law at all what then is legalism It comes to us in different forms. Let me mention four, where we see legalism raise its ugly head today. First, most obvious, legalism is when someone teaches that salvation is by works. If someone tells you that salvation is by keeping the law, then by Jesus' definition, they're a legalist. Salvation is by grace, through faith in Christ. Second, legalism occurs when people attempt to add their own man made human rules and regulations to the authoritative word of God. It's what the Pharisees did. You can't work on the Sabbath. I was in Israel a long time ago, I'm trying to think in my head like 20 some years ago. And I was there on a Sabbath, got into the hotel. And all the lights for all the buttons of all the floors of the hotel were lit. Obviously some prankster had gotten in here and pushed all the buttons. And the elevator's going to stop at every floor. And so I'm kind of leaning back against the back wall of the elevator like, it's going to take forever. You know, being really annoyed. Somebody else got on, they didn't even look. At the elevator, they didn't look at any of the buttons, they just got on. That's kind of, you know, I didn't want to say what floor because they were all lit up. I got talking to them and they explained it's the Sabbath. The hotel does this on the Sabbath. They do their thing so the elevators stop at every floor because pushing the button is work. And they don't want you to work by pushing the button. This is my lifetime. This wasn't the Pharisees. You know, this is roughly 1990. Of course, I was very polite and gracious. But in my head, I'm like, you got to be kidding. You know, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. I didn't say that. You know, it wasn't my country. Um, But that was totally normal to them. They didn't think twice about it. It's the Sabbath. Of course, we would rig it so you didn't have to push the button because you would violate the law. That's legalism. When you add man-made traditions and extra rules and regulations, they tried to protect the law by piling on lots of additional things. You know, last fall, we looked at that pretty carefully. We went through the book of Colossians and Apostle Paul's correction of Christ plus religion, where it was Christ plus you had to do some more stuff. And man-made rules added to the Word of God then take away from the authority of the Word of God. It's another form of legalism. Third form of legalism is what we would call, and this is the one we're probably most familiar with, grudging obedience. And Jesus is going to go into detail in chapter 6 about grudging obedience. And his prime example of grudging obedience is going to be the Pharisees. They're the ones who supposedly love the law. And he says, but they relate to God, not as if he's their loving heavenly father, but they relate to God as if if I do X, he'll do Y. If I do this, he'll do that. Almost as if they can trap Him into being loving and kind towards them if they only do certain things. You know, we have a bargain here. We have a deal. If I'm good, you've got to love me. And that's grudging obedience. I am earning it. That's legalism. And finally, legalism occurs, the Bible tells us, when we confuse the weightier and the lesser matters of the law. And we give great attention to the lesser matters and ignore the weightier matters. Which is exactly what Jesus said in Matthew 23 when he said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint, dill, and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy, and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. He doesn't say you can ignore the lesser matters of the law, but you don't use the lesser matters to ignore the weightier matters. And notice he makes justice, mercy, and faithfulness matters of the law. So to sum up this great truth, obedience to God's Word is good and right and just when it's done from a heart that loves the Lord. But if it's done to earn something, or if it's done to impress somebody, or if it's done to bring oppression on somebody, then it's not obedience at all. It's pharisaical legalism. And Jesus isn't pleased with it. But true, obedience is hard. Loving the law is way easier said than done. Following the Word of the Lord can be pretty challenging sometimes. And Jesus not only tells us to do it, He makes it possible. He makes it possible. Because the fourth great truth that Jesus teaches us here is that Jesus exceeds the law. Jesus exceeds the law. Look at verse 20. All those ways I mentioned, we saw legalism, but Jesus doesn't tell the Pharisees you care too much about the law. That's not his charge against them. And so in verse 20, We see what he says about them. This is the fourth great truth. He says, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. For years, I thought that was the most discouraging verse in the Bible. I was like, there's no way I'm measuring up. And Jesus is saying, rightfully so, That his kingdom requires a standard of righteousness that is higher than anyone could ever expect. That the righteous requirement of Jesus' kingdom far exceeds the legalists to whom he is speaking. Jesus is saying my standards for my kingdom are higher than anyone else's. It's an amazing statement. And there is a saying in Israel circulated even in Jesus' time that if only two men go to heaven surely one will be a scribe and the other a Pharisee. And Jesus is speaking to the people who believe that and he says, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribe and the Pharisee, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Does that sound like a man who doesn't care about obedience? Does that sound like a man who wants to oppose grace, who wants to oppose faith, who wants to oppose Old Testament standards of the moral law? This is a man who's deadly serious about obedience. And Jesus' diagnosis of the Pharisees' problem is not that they care too much about God's law, but they don't care about it at all. That's a pretty weighty charge. These men are respected for being the great law keepers. How is it that Jesus says they don't really care about it at all? Well, if we could survey all the Gospels today, I think we'd see at least five things about Pharisees and their law keeping. First, they keep the law partially. They're partial law keepers. They pay a great deal of attention to the insignificant details in the law. They don't push the button. But they manage to ignore the whole spirit of the law. As we saw in Matthew 23, they could work on the tithe but ignore mercy. They're partial law keepers. Second, they're external law keepers. They put on a good show. They try to do on the outside what the letter of the law said, but they don't obey from the heart. Third, they're man-pleasers. They obey the law because they want the applause of man. I really wanted to skip over that part. For so many people today, for so many pastors, what we want is approval. I want you to like me. Just a giant approval suck. A vacuum cleaner. They obeyed the law because they wanted the applause of man. They wanted people to look up and say, aren't they so good? Of course, then they became prideful. That's the fourth thing. They're prideful in law keeping. They became proud of the fact that they're the law keepers and they pitied. The rest of us who don't measure up to their own self-imposed standards. And then finally, fifth, they trust in themselves. They trust in their own good works, their own law-keeping for their justification, for their righteousness before God. And so they stand self-condemned. I'm going to get there by obeying the law by keeping the law, by being a better Christian than everybody else. And Jesus says, you can't do that. You're condemned. It's the whole point of his parable in Luke 18. Look there, it's in your outline. We read Jesus telling them, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. You can almost hear him God, aren't you so lucky to have me on your team? But then Jesus goes on, verse 13. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. My friends, Jesus' call to obedience is utterly different from that type of law-keeping. Jesus calls us into a different way of living. He calls us to a universal love for the law, not to be selective, but to recognize the whole law, the spirit of the law, must be kept. The whole of God's moral law is for us. He calls us to an internal obedience, a willing obedience, a delight in doing the law of God. He calls us to be god pleasers, not man pleasers, and to desire the approval of God, not of others. And he calls us to be humble in our law-keeping, not to be prideful. And he calls us in in our obedience never to trust in that obedience, as what makes us right with him, but to trust in Christ and his righteousness and have our obedience flow from that relationship which is established in our union with Christ, as we read in Second Corinthians 5.21, For our sake He, God, made Him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him, Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. We might become the righteousness of God. Whose righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees? Jesus' righteousness. And whose righteous, righteousness do we get? when we're in Christ? Jesus' righteousness. And whose righteousness do we need if we're going to enter the kingdom of heaven? Jesus' righteousness. You can't do this in your own strength. Your righteousness can only exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees if your righteousness comes from Jesus. And we've forgotten that. We've forgotten that. This week I came across a really convicting article. Uh, How many youth have grown up in the church? So, all you high school, college students. I'm going to talk about you now. And they've grown up in the church and how they leave the church after high school. And the numbers are staggering. There's lots of people studying this and none of them have any good news. And the bottom line is that in a church of our size, they took their numbers and sort of carried them down to uh, our church with a youth group about our size, about, say, 20 students, that after high school, 14 of these 20 students will leave the church. 14. And then sometime after college, in their 20s or early 30s, about half of them, or seven, will return, usually after marriage and children, but seven of our students, our children, our youth, will leave and never return. I'm not going to do this, I thought about it. Asking all the high school students to stand up and asking the rest of you to pick which ones are going to hell. And you need to pick at least seven. I mean, it's funny. It's mean. But that's the reality of what's happening. It's become clear that the American evangelical church as a whole is failing the next generation. And I've become absolutely persuaded that the best use of our resources to grow the church To build the kingdom of God over the next 20 years is to invest in our high school and college students. The most convicting part of this article came at the end with the last two reasons. There was ten reasons. The last two reasons our kids are leaving. It's directly related to today's passage uh, about Jesus' relationship with the law and with the gospel and how law and grace fit together. Let me quote some from this article. It says, even though they've never been given the categories of law and gospel, second reason they're leaving the church. is going from 10 to 1. They know the truth. And they know they haven't been taught the truth. What they've been taught is try a little harder to be a little better. And they realize they can't do it. And they know it. All that be nice moralism they've been taught, the Bible has a word for it law. And that's what we fed them, undiluted, since we dropped them off at the Noah's Ark playland. Do, don't do. And as they got older, it became good kids do, good kids don't do. And as adults, it became do this for a better life. The Gospel appears briefly as another due to get saved. But their diet is law. And the Scripture tells us the law condemns us. So that smiling, upbeat, love God, love people vision statement, you just condemn the youth with it. Because they either think they're a good person who doesn't do any of the stuff their church teaches against, drinking, smoking, doing drugs, watching bad movies, being sexually active, or they realize they don't meet Jesus' own words of what's required. And there's no rest in this law. It's a treadmill of works that they know they can't meet. And so either way, they walk away from the church simply because they don't need it. And that's the number one reason our, church, our, our youth leave the church because they don't need it. And they don't need it because we haven't given them the real thing. What we've given them is more accurately called MTD, Moral Therapeutic Deism. God wants you to do good and feel good. And Moral Therapeutic Deism has become the alternative gospel of the American church. Our kids are smart. They pick up on the message we unwittingly taught them. If church is simply a place to learn life application principles to achieve a better life, you don't need a crucified Jesus for that. Why should they get up early on Sunday morning and watch a cheap knockoff of the entertainment they went to the night before? Or the middle-aged pastor desperately trying to be relevant would be a comical cliche if the effect weren't so devastating. Yes, that one hurt. And as we jettison the gospel, our students are never hit with the full impact of of the law, which reveals their sin before God. And their desperate need of the atoning work of Jesus Christ. The gospel we've given them. Saves no one. They need law. To reveal their sin. They need to see. That they need Jesus. And that's relevant. And that's authentic. And that's something the world can't offer. We've traded a historic, objective, faithful gospel based on God's graciousness for a modern, subjective, pragmatic gospel based on achieving all of our life goals by following various life strategies. And rather being faithful to the foolish simplicity of the gospel of grace, we've set our goal on being successful gaining people and growing crowds with a gospel of glory where grace isn't needed. This gospel saves no one. Our kids can check off all the boxes with any manner of self-help or life coach or simply self-designed spiritualism and they can do it more pragmatically, more successfully and in more relevant community. And they leave having been given the choice with the very message we've taught them, they're making a smarter choice. Our kids have, are leaving because we have failed to, as Jude says, contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. I wish it wasn't a given. And this is the other guy. His name is Mark. I don't know his last name, who wrote the article. He says, I wish it wasn't a given. When I present long gospel to these kids, the response is the same every time. I've never heard that. I'm not against entertaining our youth or even jumbotrons or pizza parties, though I probably am against middle-aged guys like me trying to wear skinny jeans. It's just that the one thing, the main thing we've been tasked with, we're failing. We failed God and we failed our kids. We cannot let another kid walk out those doors. (coughs) We can't let another kid walk out those doors without being confronted with the crazy old uncle law. Without being confronted with the full weight of the law, the full weight of their sin before God. And then the amazing grace of the righteousness that's given to us in Christ so we can live in the full freedom of the gospel. They need both. These are our children. We're supposed to love them. The Bible tells us this is real love. While we were still sinners, Christ, died for us. (laughs) And he tells us in Romans 8, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. That the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in you. That the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in your children. As I close today, let me ask you a question. Where's your heart? Is your heart with the Pharisees grudgingly obeying God? Or is your heart with the followers of Christ delighting in His law wanting more than anything to be conformed to His image and to be exalted, not in ourselves, but in His righteousness, that we might become like Him. May your prayer this morning that God would cause you to be a follower of Christ and not a follower of the Pharisees. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that and then I'll close. O Lord, our God, Thank You that You have given us a King, a perfectly righteous King. Thank You that we have a King whose active obedience in His life perfectly fulfilled the law and whose passive obedience in His death perfectly fulfilled the law. And that perfect righteousness, the righteousness that far exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees is offered to sinners like us. Thank You that there is therefore now No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so, Lord, again, I pray if there is anyone among us this day who comes here not trusting in Christ, but trusting in themselves, trusting in their own righteousness, we ask that by Your Spirit You would open their eyes, that You would draw that person to Yourself by grace, through faith, in Christ, that they might embrace our righteous King, Your beloved Son. Help us to know and believe that the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. Amen.